0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: I would suggest you forge more character.
2: You're a guide on the side.
0: Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
1: Matt Townsend. On BYU
3: Radio. BYU
0: Radio. We just, I think, expect our kids to be able to just move into adulthood, right? Like, we, hey, you know, we got you... A, We got you through high school, and now we're going to send you off to college, and then you're just going to get it. But there's probably so much more to becoming an adult um, than just maturing and just growing older, right? At some point, you know they're not very well prepared. If you've ever dropped your kid off for college, you probably realize, oh, boy, I don't know if I ever taught him to iron. It's one of the benefits of – like in the LDS church we send our missionaries out and uh boy if our kids don't know how to make a meal to work to exercise i mean it's you may be creating you may be creating a monster if if you're not setting your kids up to succeed one way or another but as andy got into this idea of uh just being nice wouldn't that be one of the most important lessons we could give anybody today especially to our children is the idea of feeling um some compassion for the people that are around us, feeling a sense of compassion for the people in this world. I find it interesting that um, we're so quick to dismiss people today. We're so quick to just eliminate uh, an entire group of people because of where they were born or how they are born. Um, And it it just seems like why on earth do we need to draw such a small circle? (laughs) Why can't we keep the circles bigger and, and why can't we allow you know people to just make mistakes in life? It, being mad about someone else's mistake doesn't in any way, shape or form actually eliminate their mistake. It just makes it more difficult for people to move on and as we see it in our political world uh, – Regardless, we can't be bullies. Even if you have the bully pulpit, even if you have the most important position in the world, you 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 still have to use it with some honor, with some respect, don't you? Because if not, what are we becoming? And so I don't know. I, I look at it and I think, what's going on with us that we that we don't get this? Uh, the Dalai Lama has a great quote. He says, "People were created to be loved." Things were created to be used. The reason why the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. What do you think of that? Do you think we're spending way too much time loving things, our phones, our apps, our ideas, our positions, our party affiliations, and instead we're just using the people in our life? You know, we like the people in our life as long as they meet our needs. We like the people in our life as long as they get us what we want. We use them. Kind of like you would a wrench, right? or a a basketball. But at some point, these are human beings, and these human beings need to be understood, they need to be cared for. Have we got it backwards? I'd love to hear from you, um, because I, really. At some point, we've got to stop seeing other people as just something that we can beat up or throw out or dispose of or build a wall around or ignore, and instead start seeing people as, you know, human beings, offspring from a higher power. I, I can only imagine what uh, what our God would think we're like, as we just use each other. For everything, for jobs, for alike. How interesting, too, that what happens to us when we simply separate ourselves by being able to make an anonymous comment on a YouTube or a Facebook page. How all of a sudden we turn into somebody that we wouldn't be proud of, that we wouldn't want anyone else to know we either talk like that or act like that or respond like that. And then there's those that wouldn't care. And why wouldn't they care that they're demeaning another or pulling another person down? Something's going on there, and it might be, and the Dalai Lama may be onto it. uh, Are we using people? Martin Buber used to talk about this idea of – he called it I-it or I-thou, where we have a relationship with people. And the relationship is either going to be I, which is me, in relation to an it, a thing, or the I, me, in relation to a thou – which would be kind of a highly respected uh, other person. So think about your relationships in your life. Do you tend to approach the people around you more like a like they are an it a thing, or do you approach them like that they are a, a thou? Remember, we use the word thou when you're praying to deity, when you're referring to the higher power that is has incredible. Uh, Incredible value, incredible worth. I it or I thou. I think it's an important part for all of us to be looking at and uh and actually evaluate our lives through that spectrum. Do we do we affiliate with people that treat others like it's and things or like, you know, thous and beings? It's going to eventually come back, I think, to hurt all of us if we're only treating people like it's and things. Eventually we demean and debase the entire human race you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show could we ever expect our healthcare system to care more about our health than we do you know in the end how much if you could take a pill to lower your cholesterol or and your and and eliminate some of your heart disease or if you had to you know exercise meditate uh, do some yoga um and, and all of these other things that demand so much of you would you do it in order to create better health for yourself. Well, according to a nationwide survey conducted earlier this year by Harris Poll, on behalf of CareerBuilder, it says that 56% of U.S. employees think that they are overweight. That sentiment of uh, 3,420 full-time workers um, in the study, half of those felt like they were overweight. According to the findings, two in five workers believe they have put on pounds in their current job, on par with last year. 25% said they gained more than 10 pounds in the last year. 10% gained more than 20 pounds. Why the weight gain? It's attributed to sitting at the desk. 51% of the people blamed sitting at the desk all day. Too tired from work to exercise, 45%. Eating because of stress, 38%. Eating out regularly, 24%. No time to exercise was 38%. Workplace celebrations, (laughs) happy birthday. (laughs) 18% 18% are gaining weight because of that. How about the office candy jar? 16% of people say that uh, that is what's helping that's causing them to gain weight. Happy hour to, you know, celebrate getting through the day, 4%. So in the end, we're getting we're getting heavier and heavier, and many are blaming our workplace for that, even though many work uh, organizations are, have a culture where they're trying to create a wellness culture. In fact, in some uh, people, in some programs, you can actually earn about $532 a year just for being involved. For example, some uh, wellness programs, so look into them in your organization, will pay you $164 for health biometric screenings, or they'll pay you $132 for quitting, uh, for smoking, stopping your smoking, $111 if you enter into a weight management program in some of these uh, wellness programs. So just know there's resources for you, There's, there's places you can go, or you can just you know, continue to struggle. We had a yogurt parfait bar uh, offered by our wellness program to draw everyone in. Everyone will come for some parfait, right? And uh, when they come, then you can learn more about the wellness program. So look into your organization or by the way if you if you you know don't have a company to go to look into what your cities are doing and uh, even the hospital program that you belong to if you have insurance you probably yourself have other wellness programs you could be taking advantage of but there are resources there for everybody again the goal is to become as healthy as we can and let's do it together for heaven's sakes uh, let's even let's not just rely on our senators and legislators to bring the health to us Let's start figuring out how we can take care of ourselves. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, I've been quite blessed. I had uh, a mom and a dad, neither of which uh, graduated from a university. Um, I think they both may have attended a semester or a quarter or two. But the thing I think that happens to a lot of parents when they don't graduate and for 30 40 50 60 70 years we've been hearing the importance of education get an education obtain all the education you can parents have a weird guilt that you, you know you need to go to school you get your kids you got to go to school you got you really got to go to school so i think the generations before my generation i'm 48 years old those generations pushed school a lot and um and i and it was interesting cuz my parents that didn't go to school ended up having Uh, three of their four children get college degrees at a master's degree or higher. So we took it seriously. Now, my parents would always read. I don't know that I've ever met anybody that reads more than my mother and my father. They both uh, would read, you know, 10 books a month and uh, very well read, very well, um, very literate, very healthy people. Here's what's happening, though, that I'm seeing as I work at a university now and interact with a lot of younger generations. There's so many other ways to learn and college uh, education and, and universities themselves are losing a lot of trust in the world because, A, it's an institution, but B, they've been increasing costs for at 300 percent growth in tuition um, over the last 30 years. So... It's creating more and more problems, and I wonder what happens g- going forward. So I would just suggest to all of us parents that we, that we maybe teach our children the principle of learning, teach our children the principle of, um, of trying to understand, of growth, of development, and it doesn't necessarily have to always be rooted in universities. It doesn't have to always be re- rooted in schools. It could be rooted in reading books, In uh, It could be deeply rooted in using the Internet as a better tool for research and understanding. It could be having a family dinner where you ask better questions of one another and you have an engaging conversation. Don't tie learning only to a university. Teach your children the principles of learning, of growth, of questioning, of curiosity. These things, I believe, will serve them long term. I have a son right now that could make... Uh, more money than probably any of my kids that are in college, um, simply because of his talent set and what he 's learned on the internet about running the internet, editing for the internet, music for the internet he just he's he 's got it, and there's not i 'm sure i 'm not sure there's a lot of things he could learn at a university um, except those principles, but just because you go to a university doesn 't mean you get those principles of learning and curiosity and uh, quality and values. So be careful, teach the principle, and then you can still push going to school, but make sure that they're they're trained up in the learning principle, and in the being curious principle, and in respecting everybody. Why not raise everybody if we can? Why not make universities free to everybody so we can raise our entire society to a higher level so next generations can have even more understanding, more insight, more light? Anyway, just a, little, just a little idea for all of us. What part of the problem are you? What part of the solution can you be? What can you do today to go out and start becoming the change that you seek in this world, as Gandhi taught us? We'll take a break and come back. Continue the journey and the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. It can be tempting to want to fix everyone's problems and immediately go into the psychoanalyst mode know, trying to figure out how to help them. But sometimes even the best intentions of giving advice can do more harm than good. Today, we have Richard Jolson joining us. He's a clinical social worker, psychotherapist and author of the book, Help Me, a Psychotherapist Tried and True Techniques for a Happier Relationship with Yourself and the People You Love. He's joining us from New York to teach us why unsolicited advice can ruin relationships and how we can communicate better. Richard, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. Glad to be with you.
0: How do we know, you know, when it's a good time to give the advice and when we should just listen? How nobody, They don't always make it that easy for us, you know, by asking for our, our advice.
1: Well, that's true. I think that we have a tendency to assume that when somebody shares a problem or a dilemma, they are looking for something. And I've discovered many times over that very often when someone talks about something that's troubling them, They really want an ear more than a mouth. Yeah, right. Um, I discovered that in a session many years ago. I'm a pretty interactive therapist, but this particular session I was virtually silent the entire time. I said maybe three words in the hour. At the end of the session, the patient said to me, Dr. Jolson, this was one of the best sessions we've ever had. Mm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You were extremely helpful. That was my cue to know that all I had to do was just listen, be empathic, tune in to what was being shared with me, and that was more than the person needed.
0: It's so true, and we might feel like a driven or a compelling need to keep talking, um, but really, the healing might come in just letting somebody else talk and let, and you just empathize, understand.
1: Exactly. I, I wrote a piece called "Just Don't Do Something. Stand There," uh, and the the message of that piece was, just listen and be empathically attuned, and you will be much more helpful and much more therapeutic to the person in str- on distress, than if you were to give you know five different recommendations and six different suggestions. Um, so that uh, that was a very important lesson for me as a person and as a psychotherapist, and i 've used it ever since. Mm. The other thing I do is that when I think that some sort of advice or something I can contribute is really indicated, I ask permission. <clears throat> I want to make sure that the welcome mat is out before I come in. Uh. So I will say, uh, "Would you like to hear what I have to say about that?" And sometimes somebody will say, "This could be a friend or a patient." Uh, no, that's okay. And then I know that all they wanted was my ear. Yeah. But if they say, "Oh yeah, what do you think? What do you think I should do? How do you what, what do you think about my situation?" Then I feel as though I've been welcomed in, and my comment will be appreciated.
0: Because, I mean, I even have people that ask for my advice, but they still want to just they want me to listen. Exactly. But, but they they ask for it because that's how they might start the conversation, right? They're just trying to get you in
1: well it's it's sort of almost uh, people take it as an implicit request which it sometimes is and sometimes isn't mm. uh... there was a person recently who was struggling with the fact that after a year uh... since his wife died he was having trouble taking his ring off his finger uh... it was sort of a way to keep her with him and he was very comfortable to uh... have the ring on his finger he was beginning to date after a year and several people voluntarily suggested that it was time for him to take the ring off. Hmm. He should take the ring off. Why is that, still ring, that ring still on your finger? Don't you think it's time to remove it? He was upset. He resented it. He felt misunderstood and unhelped. Hmm. Um, that's not what he was looking for. He was just looking to share his struggle about what to do with a friend or right. a colleague.
0: And instead of it being, instead of it, I mean, it's in a way giving him the advice, just put the ring on tighter, right? It's just like, okay, nobody <laughs> understands me, so I, need, I miss her because she's the only one that understood me or whatever. But
1: You're, you're not, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the reaction he had. Gee, yeah. I think uh, this is, they're trying to take her away from me, mm. the way he responded, yeah. rather than suggesting I take my ring off.
0: So slower is faster in this situation.
1: That's right. We're trying to be
0: efficient, like just get the ring off your finger. But you've got to do it with them, not against them.
1: But people are very surprised when they get that kind of a reaction that says, I didn't want that or it's not helpful or I wish you hadn't said that. Mm. They're very surprised and sometimes wounded. By what they perceive to be a lack of gratitude or appreciation for the wisdom of their advice.
0: <laughs> and the funny thing is, is even if it were right advice, it, it didn't work because it didn't move them further toward where they needed to be. I mean, that's right.
1: It so, was unsolicited.
0: So even if you're right, if you do it the wrong way, it's not going to work.
1: Well, another pr- that's right. And another problem is that people have a tendency to get very invested in the advice they give. mm and they get upset when that advice is not instantly accepted. Um, You know, it could be as simple as, you know, honey, do you think I should wear the red dress or the blue dress? He says the red dress, she then decides on the blue, and he gets upset. Right. Because, you know, his wisdom was obviously not heeded, and he doesn't understand why he was asked in the first place. Well, his suggestion, his response, helped her to decide. Hmm. That was the value of the of the information he was actually asked for, but people get upset when they give advice and it's ignored as they see it.
0: So maybe there's a better way. So instead of asking for advice, you could just ask for some. Give me your give me your insight. Give me your opinion. Not I mean, advice almost implies that I might take it. That's right. But and and I guess that in the end, a lot of people aren't asking for advice. They're, you're just giving it to precisely. them. Precisely. Hmm. What um. What are some other things we need to watch out for when, when giving advice? I mean, it seems like, like you said, a lot of us, you know, are very possessive about the advice we give. We, we want it to be taken and heeded. Um, are there other rules about giving advice we need to pay attention to?
1: Well, I think sometimes the advice we give may be a little too much about us and not enough about them. Mm so that we are bestowing our knowledge, our thoughts, our ideas without being sufficiently tuned in to the particular needs of the other individual. And that can also feel as though the advice is misguided or, or aimed poorly or particularly unhelpful because it may be what that person would do, but no way would it be the thing that the listener would do. Mm. So I think we have to be especially sensitive. And advice, you know, people are very, very, um, you know, I had a a patient who couldn't decide whether to date somebody. So she surveyed her friends, and she found out that five of them thought she should continue the relationship, and five of them thought she should discontinue (laughs) the relationship. So she came in to have me break the tie. Oh, wow. And I said to her, well, what do you think you should do? And she said, I have no idea. She really hadn't consulted with herself. She mm-hmm. had just surveyed her support network and wound up being no better off for the trying than, and in fact, more confused. Mm. Um, and it wasn't even an appropriate question in the
0: first place. You're right. And, boy, you look at that and you think, so half of them are going to be bugged or offended or wrong on this decision. And now for the rest of her life, if she stays with the guy, half of them are going to think, oh, that was a big mistake. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, that's it's why you got to be dilemma. careful
0: what you say, right? Because that's people right. – and what amazes me is is that people do listen. They do take your advice. I mean, not always, but there's a lot of people that do what you say.
1: Well, that's that's part of the problem, and it can be ruinous to a relationship. Um, there was a, a patient who was having serious difficulty with his romantic partner, shared that dilemma with his sister – and rather than listen and consider and ask questions and help him think it through her immediate response was well why don't you just dump her and get somebody else Mm. uh... that was about as unhelpful as she could have been and basically he kind of felt as though he lost her as a resource for the future Mm -hmm. because it so tainted their relationship and her her value as a as a good ear because she was so quick to say something that seemed so uh, inappropriate.
0: Yeah, just like, like, yeah, you don't care. You don't even understand. So I mean, part of that, I guess, is once you're in and trying to understand the issue, I always I always suggest you don't, even if you have a quick answer, save it, like, go understand more. Tell me more what you're concerned about. That's right. Try to get them talking more before you give any advice.
1: Well, it's really about helping the person decide for themselves. Right, that's the best one can do, whether that's a therapist or that's a friend or a colleague, the best thing you can do is sort of facilitate the decision making on the part of the individual, and not sort of preempt them by bestowing your advice or your knowledge first.
0: Mm, so true, and I guess that's the that's they'll be more motivated, right? If if they come up with the answer on their own or with you. They're more, they're more motivated to actually implement what they're talking about.
1: Uh, that's right. That's right. That's powerful. um One of the things I am focus on in my practice is making sure that people just don't get very smart about what's the matter, but they find a way to utilize their insight. Hmm. There are too many people who seem to be insight-rich and change-poor. Um, And that's unfortunate. And that's why any good therapy really has to help people utilize their knowledge, their insight, the wisdom they get from other people uh, so that things become better, which is why people
0: ask for help in the first place. Mm. Because a lot of people keep they just they have a better story, a better explanation. Now they're more able to explain why they, you know, struggle so much in their marriage, but they're not changing anything. Oh, people you see a that a lot. in
1: relationships to recycle some of the same issues and the same arguments, and they don't advance the cause of their union because they are still struggling and not resolving anything.
0: Mm. Mm. too often in too oh, yeah. relationships. Oh, well, that's a big, big deal. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Jolson, and uh, he is the author of the book Help Me, which is a psychotherapist's tried-and-true techniques for a happier relationship with yourself and the people you love. We'll take a break, come back, give you some more information and advice on when and how you you give advice to people around you. You got to be careful. It will ruin the relationship if you're not uh, if you're not doing it, you know, with their heart and their needs in mind. Ah, human relationships. Difficult but so worth it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend show helping you love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Dr. Richard B. Jolson. He's a psychotherapist and author of the book, Help Me, a Psychotherapist's Tried and True Techniques for a Happier Relationship with Yourself and the People You Love. And today he's talking about uh, how you need to watch out for unsolicited advice and giving unsolicited advice because it may end up harming your relationship. Uh, Dr. Jolson, thank you again so much for being with us.
1: My pleasure, Matt.
0: Talk about, um, in your book, one of the things that you mentioned is, a, is listening patience. The, um, just, I, I guess, explain it to us. What is and how do we go about developing listening patience?
1: Well, one of the things I've observed, especially in working with couples, is that very often people look as though, seem as though they're listening, but really are not at all. Uh, they may be formulating their next comment, Uh, developing a response to what's being said, defending against what they don't like hearing from an upset partner, and so they very often don't really take in the information and process it. Hmm. Uh, When I've observed this sometimes, I've said to a partner, would you please repeat what you just heard from him or her? And often I've discovered that they simply cannot do it. Right. Um, So... Listening patience is really about being able to tune in and truly hear what's being said because it's valuable just by virtue of the importance of that person. And you need the information in which to be able to participate in a meaningful dialogue.
0: Mm. Well, I've seen it too where they ask you a question because they kind of know they should, and then you know immediately they're not listening. And it, it, <laughs> it, it, right. it just, it, it, you become so disheartened that you're like, you don't even want to finish your answer.
1: Well, it, it, uh, sometimes it, it really indicates that the person is about two or three degrees off the mark. Mm. And that probably has to do with the fact that they were distracted by their own formulation of a next comment. Yeah. I also emphasize the distinction between reacting and responding, which is very central to being a patient listener. Reacting is something that you do immediately. It's usually emotionally driven. It takes about two seconds, and it's not nearly as thoughtful and thorough and useful as a response, which is a little more measured, a little bit more thoughtful, and usually much more useful.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, when people interact with each other, there's nothing wrong with saying, well, let me think about that, or, you know, I need to think about I need to consider what you're saying. That is a good sign to me when somebody does that, as opposed to jumping on the comment with their reaction, which sometimes can be harsh and and sort of a counterpunch, yeah, rather than a real response that is constructive,
0: right? And um, even the the reaction could be my way of trying to control you or control the conversation, right? I right. could be using my emotional reactions to take this where I want it to go, exactly. Mm. Does right. talk about willingness. You bring it up that uh, just the importance of sometimes what they really need to know isn't your answer to a situation, but your willingness to be there.
1: That's right. That's right. Being present and being involved and being engaged can be much more important than uh, anything you actually say. Mm. It's sort of like the issue of. Um, A lot of of couples, uh, one partner will often complain about the unhelpfulness of their partner. Um, When that partner gets it and finally offers to help in some specific way, they are relieved of the burden of having to do so, because all that person wanted was to know they were available and not necessarily to help. Mm. The wife who says to her husband, you know, you never help me bathe the children, um... All of a sudden, after years of listening to that, begins to bathe the children, and she comes in and says, Honey, that's okay. You don't have to do that. I'll take care of the bath. Yeah. And all she wanted was to know that he was available and willing, not necessarily to do the actual work.
0: Hmm. That's so true. And, and sometimes because we're so reactive, we don't even want to be willing and available. We just are That's reacting right. to, oh, now she's judging me, saying I don't ever help.
1: Oh, boy. So it, it pushes one the other, in the other direction.
0: Mm, so, That's so right. true. How do we come down off of these conversations? Have you found uh, a, an easy way to not get emotionally sucked into what's going on in the conversation?
1: Well, I think part of the problem is that some of these conversations can be very heated, very emotionally charged. And so it ignites anger. And unfortunately, once the anger kicks in, the essence of the conversation is essentially lost. Mm. It becomes all about the anger. Yeah. Two people are having a conversation. They're getting somewhere. Somebody gets angry. And all of a sudden, the only thing that they want to talk about is that person's anger. And so the value of the topic is gone until the anger either recedes or disappears some other way. Mm. This is a very, very common problem in, much, uh, in a lot of couple sessions, where the anger takes over and the issue is momentarily lost. Right. So it's so important to be able to bind the anger or to use the anger constructively. People use their anger destructively too often and too easily. But, you know, you can say, gee, that really makes me feel angry when you said that that's much more useful than to be angry mm. and to use it as a weapon against the person who you're trying to work things out
0: with yeah and and i guess too it keeps the conversation going cuz usually if you're to... angry you're either going to you know escalate and fight or you're going to run and 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 hide which usually shuts down the conversation
1: that's right it's a notorious conversation killer mm. and people trying to work out differences resolve conflicts can't afford yet another episode of recreating their conflict because they're angry.
0: No, exactly. Yeah, this keeps the pattern going. That's right. As we wrap up, what would you say is the one thing, the one thing that makes the biggest difference in, I guess, giving feedback to others and taking feedback from others?
1: Well, I think think the most important thing I could think of to answer that with is that people need to appreciate the fact that change is always possible there are too many people who have a tendency to foreclose on change they treat their problems as though they were conditions that can't be changed they have to be lived with and i'm a big fan of taking anything that people present and framing it as a problem that needs to be solved Hmm. conditions are accepted and tolerated problems are actively uh, solved So anything that is perceived or experienced as a problem has a much better chance of undergoing change than something people feel is nothing they can do anything about.
0: Yeah, that hopelessness, huh? That's right. Mm.
1: And despair is the biggest change killer of all.
0: Oh, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. We appreciate you, Dr. Richard Jolson. Everybody go to the website, richardjolsondsw.com. Uh, richardjolsondsw.com. And you can get more information about his book, Help Me, A Psychotherapist' Tried and True Techniques for a Happier Relationship with Yourself and the People You Love. Powerful stuff. Do not get discouraged. Let's get, Let's get some solutions. Let's get some tools. Let's get the help we need. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. That song means it's time to bring on Pastor Ron Hager. (laughs) He's not a pastor. But you are a, a, a great healer and shepherd of many. Dr. Ron Hager joins us. Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU. He's, his expertise is chronic disease prevention. You also make a really good point. Um, you, you have a quote I read by Dean Ornish. Yeah. About health. And it's almost like we have it backwards Like we're trying to go find health, isn't that interesting? Yeah, but talk about it. Explain it. We actually have health. So so
4: Dean Ornish is a physician. Yeah, many many people have probably heard of the the, the, the Dean Ornish Heart Disease Reversing Program and these kinds of things. Um, So he's a researcher. He's a physician, and he has studied a lot about chronic disease and and how and how preventable it is. And And this is what he says: Poor health is not caused by something you don't have. It's caused by disturbing something that you already have. Healthy is not something you need to get. It's something you have already if you don't disturb it. Interesting, Yeah. So it's almost like it's inherent within us. Um, and, and then something comes along as in, uh, or, or, you know, something can come along and disturb it. Uh, maybe the way we eat or how much weight we put on or maybe other environmental factors. Um, and, and you might say, well, what about genes? Um, Well, we've talked about genes for the most part. Uh, You know, you can't do anything about those per se, but how you choose to live your life can make a difference in how those genes express or mis-express.
0: So usually health is your natural state. Yeah. Until you disturb it.
4: (laughs) I mean, that's where your body wants to be, Right. right? It's like that's how you were made you were you yeah. actually made to be healthy
0: Short of a disease that you couldn't control a cancer or a gene yeah. that you didn't have control over health is your natural state until you disturb it and, right. and gum it and, up right and, and
4: and health is a kind of a personal or individual thing mm-hmm. right i mean a person could be born say like with a congenital birth defect or maybe some kind of uh you know mental incapacity at birth uh you know, and that and that person, you know, there's nothing they could do right. about that. So when I say it's a personal or an individual thing, to me, your health is not the same as my health. You know, I mean, there are some standards, like say blood pressure. You know, you, you and I should, you know, if we want to have healthy blood pressure, we're probably going to be pretty close to each other. You can't yeah. say, hey, I feel most healthy when my blood pressure is <laughs> off the charts, and and I'm, I'm like sorry, you don't feel that blood pressure dropping, right, or, or whatever. But but the, my point, I guess, is. It, it it's it's whatever capacity a person has, given any constraints or limitations hmm. that that may be imposed upon them uh, by by their own choice or not, you know, like in the case of my, maybe like a birth defect or something that you know you got, literally had no control over, but you can still have a high quality of life. I mean, yeah. even even if a person has, uh, you know, from birth some kind of mental deficiency. Uh, you know, diet can still make a difference in their life. Mm-hmm. Being active can still make a difference in their life. Uh, so you can and while they may not have a whole lot of control over that, maybe they need constant care, then the caregiver, you know, can help them with that. So it's an individual thing and and, and as I was, you know, getting ready to come in today to talk a little bit, I, I just thought, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times I bring in research, you know, we talk about the numbers, we talk about what, uh, you know, researchers are finding, what the conclusions of studies are, and and I just thought, you know, well, that's all fine and dandy. But, you know, what what can I really say to make a difference? Mm-hmm. You know, is there anything that I can teach or express or, or say that, that might make a difference, you know, for a person? And, and that's kind of what I, I guess what I wanted to talk a little bit it's about. It's almost
0: motivation, today. it seems like. You could throw statistics at it and it doesn't seem to motivate
4: people No, still. Not, not I, really. mean, I mean, it does some. Some are kind of tuned for that. You know, and they, they kind of live by the statistics and die by the statistics. Yeah. But, but for other people, you know, they're not into all that number crunching and counting things and, you know, their their brain doesn't organize things that way. Um, so I, I wanted to just, you know, mention a few. Well, I wanted to mention another quote because as I've talked about this idea of health being kind of an individual, personal mm-hmm. uh, kind of a thing. Uh, here's, here's another uh, quote from a, a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist. Uh, he said, the patient should be made to understand that he or she must take charge of his own life. Don't take your body to the doctor as if he were a repair shop. But isn't that, it's it's like you said earlier, we kind of have this backwards. Right. You know, and it's about individual personal responsibility. And then uh, the last quote I'll mention, then we can talk about what we can do from uh, another physician. Every man's disease is his personal property. (laughs) Yeah, that's 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 a pretty potent statement. That's very
0: potent. Yeah, so think about that. Every man's disease is his personal property. Yeah. But, it's yours.
4: But, but generally speaking, I don't think most people accept personal responsibility for how they feel. They take their body to the doctor as if the mm-hmm. doctor were a body shop and say, fix me up, doc.
0: Or they take their meal to a restaurant to be – given the meal. And it's almost like you and I were talking about restaurants. I'm, I'm picking yeah. Dr. Death Preventer's brain. Like, what do you order at this restaurant? What What do you order at this restaurant? And it's, it's interesting, your choices, some of those, like, if I asked somebody out there, what do they order at uh, like a TGI Fridays or an Applebee's, some name brand place, they'd kind of know what they'd want on the on, in their order yeah. you couldn't even really answer some of those because yeah. you're like oh I don't really go there yeah well because there's not a whole lot good there to eat well there's a lot good well okay just not good for you I guess we've got to clarify that yeah. point right and, <laughs> but and yeah I, and, that's it that, that, that's it yeah. you, you go and you own this and I agree with that right yeah. I mean some people even go to the restaurant and they're like there's no healthy choices on this menu yeah. so I'll have a double cheeseburger yeah well
4: and it's kind of funny I think and I know because I've been there I'm not I'm not pointing fingers I'm pointing at myself I know that there was a time when I would go to a restaurant and for whatever reason the mentality or the mindset is free license mm-hmm. right yeah this is special this eat. is an occasion yeah, I'm, we're spending I'm money <laughs> nothing matters yeah. I can do whatever I want right I mean tell me any other time in your life when that's ever been a good idea right
0: well like, like driving
4: okay uh, it's a special night. I'm just going to drive crazy tonight. Yeah, right. You nobody know, does that. Yeah. I know there's a hairpin curve up ahead, but I'm going to see if I can take
0: it at 100. We'll see what we can get out of it. Yeah. No, nobody does that. It's true. Right? Well, I guess that's the difference though, right? We we think of that's crazy. Well,
4: I've often thought about our health as being principle-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember a quote I heard from George Washington. Well, I didn't hear it from George Washington. Wow. I, I read it. You have lived a long time. It is in a book. Um, <laughs> Uh, he said something like a, a principles is an immovable object, not a temporary inconvenience. Huh. But but how many times do we set aside principles of health for special occasions, for celebrations, to adapt to our mood or our emotions? Uh, so I've often thought, you know, if I, if people could think more about their health as principle-based, things that they really believe in, things that they don't change based on circumstances or – uh, events in their life. They, this is just who they are. Mm, you love know? it. Yeah. So that's great advice. Yes. So so that might be something you know that can help a
0: person. By your good friend George Washington. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, this next one avoiding counting or uh, drinking your calories is one I've taught my kids. Yeah. They hate me because of you. Yeah. Well. It, but it, we may save their lives.
4: It, it's a tough one, but you need you really need to reduce uh, consuming your calories through drinking. Now some research shows that that. You know, you could take an equal amount of calories that you drink or that you eat. Like, let's say, you know, however many calories are in an orange, and you could also drink that much orange juice. So same number of calories, but your brain does not process it the same way. It might have something to do with, uh, you know, neurons signaling the digestive process that actually begin with chewing and what goes on in your mouth. But when you just blow stuff right by your tongue and your mouth, right down into your gut in a liquid form... It's um, gonna want. Oh, I didn't think it just keeps wanting more. Yeah, and and your brain doesn't even it's respond like your the same way. counters are off. Interesting, but it's a super easy way to overconsume calories as well. And yeah. generally, the things you drink with calories are not nutrient dense; they're calorie dense. Oh sure. Uh, sure. And, and I'm in, and I'm saying even things like. Uh, uh, you know, rice milk and soy milk. A lot of people yeah. say, "Oh, they're well, so healthy. It's not dairy. It's healthy, so I can drink as much as I want." But it's also uh, it's got calories. It's also
0: pretty calorie dense. Sports drinks, fruit drinks, juices, <sighs> frappuccinos, f- all of the, yeah. you know the 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 caffeine that we're drinking along with the milks and the sugars and everything else. Yeah, yeah
4: So hmm. so really look. Um, so what do you drink? So people say, "Well, what am I supposed to drink? Water?" Well, I guess yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean. I mean, think about, yeah. uh, you know, a 1,000 years ago or 500 years ago or however long you want to go back. I mean, what were people drinking back then? Oh, pretty much water. right? If um, I
0: have water one more day, I'm going to die. <laughs> a phrase you never heard 100 years ago, 200 years right,
4: ago. Right. So this is an, an adaptation in our environment that has not been – Very conducive to our health. (laughs) Wild. Our
0: last one. We've only got about thirty seconds. What's uh, what would you? The last one is just exercise. Be physically active.
4: Yeah, to be physically active. Now a lot of people say, well, you know, I can't afford a gym membership, or I, you know, I can't afford a personal trainer, or, or I don't have an hour a day, you know, to do this, and and maybe their fit their actual current level of physical fitness. Is a is a limitation, you know. Mm -hmm. They say, "Well, I'd like to exercise, but what am I going to do?" Yeah. Well, go for a walk, and you might say, "Yeah, but I can't walk very far. I weigh four hundred pounds, or whatever." (laughs) So, so walk for ten seconds. Walk for thirty seconds. The next day, walk for a minute. At the end of a week, walk for two minutes. You do whatever you can. Yeah. You know, if you want to do some push-ups before you go to bed at night, you say, "I'm a little embarrassed. I can only do one push-up." Do one push-up until you can do two. Yeah. And then do ten. And then instead of doing it once a day, do it, uh, uh, or, or I mean, once, once a week, a week. Do, do, yeah. do, it, do it twice, then work up. So you work up you, and you cool. change your diet, you change your activity habits, and you do it very small steps. And you do it according to what you can manage and what you can handle. And then you ask yourself,
0: is this making a difference? Love it. And if it does, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Dr. Ron Hager, thank you so much. And uh, folks, let's just take one of his ideas. Let's, I'm going to start with the one push-up. I'm starting it today. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: You know, as we've been talking about your career and risk and reward you know, there's something about passion in what you do, and it makes a huge, huge difference. And so in this Coach's Corner segment, I wanted to talk about a man who um, who had and has incredible passion in what he does. So I, I was talking earlier in the show about how my son had just graduated from high school. He made it. He finally did it, 18 years Proud of him, uh, my son Tanner, and um, it all began though back in elementary school. We, you know, we had, Tanner's our third child. We had taken had two other children, taken them to kindergarten. It was such an exciting moment. Dropped them off; they were so happy. Loved going to school. Loved going to kindergarten. And we thought Tanner would be exactly the same. We thought he would just eat it up, and um, you know, every every other sign said that Tanner would love it. So we took our cute little Tanner uh, to kindergarten. I mean, he'd even gone to preschool, nailed it, loved it, took him to kindergarten, dropped him off on the first day, actually pulled up on the first day, and it went crazy. He was going to have none of that. He was not going to get out of the van. He did not want to do it. Fought us, fought us, fought us. We carried him in, sat down. He wouldn't stop clinging to us. It was all over us. And it was interesting. I mean, it was like, what? What is going on? And then, you know, as a parent, you're like, come on, just just go, just go. And you're basically tearing your child off of your leg and throwing you toward the mean teacher. So we did this every morning for his first week. And then we'd end up staying and, and we and every time we tried to leave, he'd chase us down and scream and cry and cry and cry, lots of stress, lots of anxiety. We went and met with the school counselor, and the school counselor says, you know, he has a little social anxiety. The big key is you just need to just leave him and go. You just need to get out of here, and we'll take care of it. And then that's hard as a parent because you're like, oh, I don't want to leave my son and da-da-da-da. So finally, we just created this plan where we were going to pull up in our car and open the door, and basically they were going to grab our kid. out of the car. Now who do you have grab the child out of the car? Well, the principal. The principal of this school was David Viscerelli. And he was the greatest man ever. And so when I think of somebody that had passion for his job, he loved these kids. And he would stand at the front of this elementary school and he just helped us get Tanner out of the car every day, basically for a year. And for the first little while he'd go kicking and screaming, but eventually, really quickly actually, within a week or so David Visciarelli, Dr. Vicciarelli would open the door. He'd say, hey, Tanner. Tanner would look at him like, ugh. And they'd walk into Dr. Vicciarelli's office. Dr. Visciarelli would sit him down. They'd talk for a few minutes. And he'd say, whenever you're ready, and he'd give him a candy. And he'd say, whenever you're ready, we'll go into your class. And then Tanner would say, I'm ready. And then they'd walk into the class. That happened for the rest of the year, basically. Dr. Vicciarelli, one man, changed my little boy's life. And I remember when he uh, left elementary school, um, it was like we were so appreciative. Actually, Dr. Vicciarelli changed schools. And when he was leaving, we said, Tanner loves you. You need to always know that. We'll invite you to his graduation. Lo and behold, my son just graduated. And at a, at a party for the high school kids— Somebody comes up to my son and says, are you Tanner Townsend? And he says, yes. And he, he says, I'm David Viscerelli, Dr. Viciarelli. And he came up and found my son as an 18-year-old boy who had overcome that anxiety and had graduated and was graduating and is, now was really good at you know social situations and anxiety and is handling his anxiety and dealing with it. And Dr. David Vicciarelli, one person, you know, changed a life immensely. That is the passion we all need in our career, where you, sure, you can change different locations. But Dr. Vicciarelli chased down my son, not only when he was a preschooler kindergartner, but also he came back to chase down my son as an 18 year old to see full circle what had happened. Folks, when you're in, your, when you're in the, the role you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter what the role is. Not everybody's going to be an Oprah. Not everybody's going to be a president of the United States. You might just be a teacher or a principal, but you're changing people's lives, like Dr. Vicciarelli changed my son Tanner's life. He changed our entire family's life. For us, he will always be held up as an iconic example of somebody of passion that just is doing what's right. And he is a a fantastic role model. You all have the ability to do that at your own work and your own workplace. When you are doing what you do uniquely well, it doesn't matter what the job is. You're offering something to the rest of the people around us. One of the reasons why so many of us are down and out about our jobs is because we're dealing every day with so many people that are down and frustrated with their jobs. So will you please just take the challenge that Ann Creamer gave you and I'm giving you right now. Let's go find our passion. You don't have to leave everything and go start it. Just go start it casually. Go start finding other ways to figure out what your song is that you need to bring to this great uh, big ball of mud. Dr. Viciarelli, thank you for uh, being a, a wonderful role model for my son and for my family. Uh, Truly, you are a hero of our family.
4: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me, and they're like, oh, is is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day, from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, We've had had some great guests on recently um, that... Of course, you don't need to push your kid to get married, but there will be a point where you'll be thinking, "Seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen?" So we wanted today to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage, marriage, and it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's it's not always that we. We just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married, but w- there's, there's certain things that have to be there. And, and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to have, you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be, you got to want to be in the game. Um, And we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finished this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us, uh, and especially, and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your, the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an an age group and a a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like, uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you nine, you'll, hap- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on – if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married. Young, don't get married young. Get just wait, wait, get your degree once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing – then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show too is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that, the, that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60 percent of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well. Which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So – and we talked about it, the fact if you, if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You, actually, you, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage – then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't – is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, And so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, Couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to – to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, The other thing that people tend to do, if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. According to experts on violent extremism, Islamic state recruitment in the United States is reaching record levels. ISIS recruiting efforts have shifted their focus to young adults and even younger teenagers. Daniel Kohler, director of the German Institute on Radicalization and Deradicalization Studies, believes that mothers are an important resource in combating violent extremism. And he joins us today from Germany. Daniel Kohler, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
3: Hello. Thanks for having
0: me. Great to have you. And uh, loved the article we read about you um, in the Huffington Post. Um, radical extremism—we hear about it. It really is uh, the, the foundational, I guess, ideology, paradigm, tool used. Um, it seems like to uh, in the in the terrorist. Um, you know, arsenal. and And one of the things that I think is fascinating about what you're doing is you're you're trying to figure out how to minimize and eliminate radicalization um, at at kind of the grassroots level. Talk to us about what you're what you're doing, Daniel.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So what I do is I work with those individuals who are called and research associate gatekeepers. These persons have a close, positive relationship. Emotional relationship with the person that might be at risk of radicalizing. It can be the parents, brothers, sisters, childhood friends, colleagues, employers, so anyone who has some form of positive relationship with the person. And we know from many studies that these associate gatekeepers, these close friends, uh, associates, family members, are the ones recognizing a radicalization process first. We know that. Even for phenomena like lone wolf terrorism, mm. where we think that people radicalize completely alone and no one recognizes it. In the vast majority of cases, there is someone, a friend, a family member who who would say afterwards, there was something, I recognized something, there was something strange. My brother, my sister, my son, my daughter changed in a certain direction, but I had had no idea what to do. I had no help. I had no no one to help me interpret the signs and know what to do about it or against that. And this is what I do. I provide specific training for expert counselors and advise governments to build family support programs to assist families and communities in recognizing a violent radicalization process as early as possible and to give them the tools to prevent anything further from happening so that the mm. person radicalizing further, because we know that communities and families are our first line of defense, and we need to empower them. We need to strengthen them and provide them with the tools and expert advice that they need.
0: Love that. That is... Because we've heard about it over and over, these these a lot of these people feel estranged; they feel um, disconnected from their communities, especially here in the United States. I know that's what we hear here. Um, talk about because really, there's there's you you mentioned there's three different approaches that a country can take: prevention, repression, and intervention. And many times we end up going more on the prevention and repression side of uh, extremism and of. Um, uh, just just i guess this this indoctrination but it, but you're you're really focusing on the f- the front line of intervening finding these people and really training the family members that are close to them empowering them and giving them somewhere to go to get the resources and the help they need
3: yeah that's right because when when we are looking at people radicalizing. Uh, We need to work with these individuals and these families and communities that are affected. We cannot arrest or kill our way out of violent Mm. extremism. It simply won't work. And we can, of course, and we should, of course, invest more in prevention and education against extremism. This is what is currently happening. At least uh, this administration has done a lot to pour a little bit more support, financial support in some communities and, and model cities to build some prevention projects but what we need is we need to support families who are affected right now with their sons and daughters thinking about going to syrian iraq or having made the attempt to travel to syrian iraq or even looking into other extremist groups like neo-nazis for example we've seen a massive upsurge in in far-right or hate hate crimes and far-right violence in the united states and other countries western countries as well it's not just the united states So we need to do something about those individuals who are right now radicalizing, who are right now turning violent, who are right now engaging in violent extremist groups uh, or making the attempt to join even terrorist groups. And for that, we need to look at intervention. Intervention style programs address the root causes or the motivational aspects of a person radicalizing. We ask, what drives that person? Sometimes it's frustration or the disintegration. Sometimes it is the quest for justice and honor and dignity and pride. Sometimes they are simply driven by humanitarian aspects. So they want to help defend women and children in Syria and think Western countries don't do enough uh, for their brothers and sisters. Or sometimes it's just fear and anger. So there are many, many different mm. aspects. And we need to provide families and communities, first of all, with understanding and assessment we need to have experts available that can assess the situation. How far has someone progressed into violent extremism and why? So that we can hand-tailor an individual approach and help the families and communities because they are the ones who are most legitimate to suggest alternative solutions, to, adjust, to, to suggest simply changing the ways. And, and there we can help the families and we can help the communities.
0: Because if... If the, if the child or the youth or the teen or the adult, you know, whatever reason, they're, if they're feeling not integrated, ostracized, then that's a different approach than if they really want better humanitarian service for people in Syria. You, but you Absolutely. need to go in and assess it and figure out why yeah. this person is leaning toward radicalization or being radicalized and then intervene.
3: Exactly. That's powerful. Exactly. I've worked with... Yeah, I've worked with teenagers uh, who had high school degrees, later on, university degrees came from well-off families, and they didn't feel left alone. They they had all the perspectives, all the future perspectives that you would wish for in in our countries, and they still chose to go to Syria because they wanted to achieve something else. They wanted to build a new state. They wanted to to, uh, deliver humanitarian aid and help human beings, and they simply thought that in a Western country, they could not do that. So we, we could not help these individuals by providing a new job or education. They have that. Right. They have friends and they have a loving family. So we need to help them to solve these problems, to work with a charity or do an awareness-raising campaign and really change something with our, with our tools that we have at our disposal and not going there and helping a terrorist organization.
0: And you mention um, in the article a 19-year-old Whose, I guess, mother noticed he was starting to talk a lot about traveling to Syria to join ISIS, and the mother intervened by grabbing or, or by taking his his documents, his passport. Um, I guess you're not saying every mother should go take their kids' passports, but you're saying, you know, if you if you notice these things, there is a resource. Your organization is a resource that they can turn to to be informed and find out what to do.
3: Exactly, because uh, in my In my experience many parents recognize something many mothers actually know that something is going wrong and they obviously want to protect the children sometimes they overreact or they react in a counterproductive way and radicalization or recruiters these groups they work with these provocations they want these kind of escalations within Mm. the family because that would prove to them and the recruits see even your own mother Stands between you and your honorable goals even your own parents do not understand you as uh, a true Muslim only we understand you only we are the ones supporting you so they would deliberately provoke these kind of conflicts in the family and use them as a proof that they are right so we need to help the families to understand where not to fall for these provocations where to take out the steam of this very sophisticated psychological process ISIL has an own recruitment handbook that they train their recruiters on and it is very sophisticated they have a five-step process and they, they wouldn't even mention the term jihad until the fourth stage hmm. they are actually very much concerned about building a positive emotional relationship with their recruit, so that they can turn this relationship against the family against the friends against the school and this for this they, they take time they are very careful not to step in between the recruit and his or her family in the early stages so they're very careful about that. What we need to do is we need to protect these bonds, these emotional bonds between the gatekeepers and the potential recruit so that we can help them not to fall for these these provocations.
0: Man, we knew ISIS. We knew that they were advanced, you know, financially. We knew that they were strong so, you know, on social media. I didn't realize they had such a structured ideology and, and psychological approach to Bringing to radicalizing it, but it's it, so it really is. This is the first time, Daniel, I've heard of a, of an organized group that's psychologically equaling and taking on ISIS. That's powerful.
3: Yeah. So what we do is um, we we are engaging in a form of psychological warfare. We're turning their own recruitment psychology, which is trust based, yeah. against them. So I'm working with those individuals who have that trust that ISIL desperately wants to have. Uh, We are working with the mothers who have taken care of the children when they were sick. We're we're working with fathers who who caught them when they were falling as little children. We are working with childhood friends and teachers, those individuals who have that trust that ISIL wants to destroy, and they want to have that kind of trust, because otherwise it's very hard to convince a teenager or a 16-year-old, 14-year-old to leave everything behind and try to travel to Syria and pick up a gun. Mm-hmm. So this is a very sophisticated psychology, and, and ISIL has turned that psychology into a mass product. They have written the book. They've published it. It's, it's freely available. Every, everyone can read it. Mm. And this is why I'm so astan- astounded every time that actually we in the West and experts and policymakers, we fail to study our own enemy. We fail to look at what they actually want to do. And I've studied radicalization processes in the u s and Western Europe and in other countries, and I can tell you the vast majority of them are by the book radicalization process they are almost all the same mm-hmm. the way how they work the mechanism behind it and this is no surprise because they use a book and they have a handbook for it, and they use the same approach all over because it 's more effective for them
0: that is so it 's true it's uh and it actually it it, it seems like a no brainer we should be Understanding the psychological side of this. And I think you're right, because it's easier to just, let's just make it a military option. Let's make it a border, an immigration issue. We make it every other issue, but the issue it is. Uh, we will take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. If you want more information about uh, what um, uh, Daniel is doing, you can go to GERDS.org, G-I-R-D-S.org, girds.org, and uh, we'll get you started on that. When we come back, we'll find out what we can do And the process of de-radicalizing another person and the importance just families, neighbors, friends, close ones have uh, to, to making a change in this. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How do we combat ISIS or ISIL recruiting efforts in the United States? How do you take on an organization that is psychologically trying to basically cre- replace uh, the, the family of, uh, of a young, let's say, 15-year-old uh, individual? And, you know, parents love them. But they've got a beef. Something's wrong. Something's not working for them. And then ISIL knows all they've got to do is get in there. And apparently they have about a five-point plan. And one by one, they just start winning over the trust. And um, our guest today, Daniel Kohler, is the director of the German Institutes uh, on Radicalization and De-Radicalization Studies, GERDS, it's called. If you go to GERDS, G-I-R-D-S dot org, you can find out about the, the organization. And what it uh, really is doing is it's a resource for people, for parents, for social uh, workers, for governments to be trained in how to, how to de-radicalize People That have already that are on the verge or that are already in the in maybe in the traps of ISIS and ISIL. Daniel Kohler, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Talk about. Um, so if, if I'm a parent and I'm noticing that my child and maybe give us some of the, the more obvious signs that my child is maybe starting down the, the process of radicalization. What do I look for and what do I do? Who do I call? How do I get a hold of your organization? And then talk me through what your organization will do.
3: So, uh, currently, when we look at the more obvious signs, for example, if they share clear ISIS or ISIL propaganda uh, on Facebook or Twitter, if they use ISIL terminology, if they, for example, call, their friends, green birds, which is a reference to uh, martyrs, actually, or if they more and more um, reject other interpretations of Islam, if they practice takfirism, meaning if they call other Muslims uh, infidels or non-Muslims because they're not practicing correctly, Mm. if they start meeting uh, with specific Salafi preachers, if there are more and more fights and arguments in the families about specific political issues like in Syria and Iraq, or if they uh, do not even say Syria but Hasham, which is obviously the geographical denomination for the Salafi understanding or the the caliphate there, Um, and and these kind of things, if they more and more uh, reject the family, if they more and more reject alternative interpretations, if they have... A very wave-like behavior if they have peaks energy bursts where they go out and do a lot of activities that are centering around religion and faith and on the other uh, part they have lows that almost look like a depression or frustration they don't get even out of the bed they don't sleep well they don't eat well because they are so concerned In their own ideology with a certain problem the suffering for example of women and children in syria they're constantly pushed forward by a radical group either online or offline to look for new solutions try out new things and then they are directed obviously to performing the hatred which means uh, leaving a western country and traveling to a muslim country in this case syria or iraq so These signs are the more obvious ones, and there are more subtle ones as well. And radicalization, violent radicalization, is a complex psychological process, so we don't know for each and every person how they react uh, in a certain situation, but we can get close to identify what what might happen. If you look at the fact that these experts that are trained, these social workers or family members, uh, parents that have lost their children and now are doing family counseling themselves, they have seen that before, and we have studied hundreds of cases in the last year. So for these kids, it's the first time they're radicalized. For us, it's it, it's, it's, a, it's another time that we've seen another case. Mm-hmm. We see that these elements, these behavioral elements, they pop up all the time. So we, we can identify a number of radicalization factors, and we can actually assess very well how far someone has progressed so far. And if there's a high risk of someone thinking about going in the next couple of days or making the attempt or if they're in the early stages of radicalization. And this is very important. So if you would contact me either online or reach out to me in any other form, I would try to connect you to a program or a counselor in your vicinity that I've trained. Um, I've trained family counseling programs in Canada, uh in in, in the US in Minneapolis for example. I've trained probation officers. So individuals that can help you assess the situation or I help you myself so I would try to find out as much as I can about your situation. You would describe your situation to me, what is actually causing the concern. I would help to provide you with an understanding of what is happening right now. Is is it my understanding as well that there's actually a reason for concern? Is there a radicalization process or not? Might there be other reasons for the behavior or for your concerns? Um, and if if I see risk of a radicalization, I would help you to understand what drives your son or daughter towards that group, what might he or she find attractive, and what could be easy ways to, um, to take out the steam of it, to provide alternative solutions, and to not let the situation escalate. So I would teach you how to spot certain provocations. I would tell you or offer certain alternative ways to react to them. Um, understanding, in my perspective, is one of the most important things that you have to offer. Because when families do not understand what is happening, they get afraid, they panic, they don't know what to do, and usually they react very uh, protectively or repressively. They take away passports, they lock them up, they uh, they say you you're not allowed to go to a certain place, meet with certain people, or go to a certain mosque, which is obviously the exact reaction that a group like ISIL hopes for. Right. They could always say, now they are cracking down on your true faith. They are not even respecting your faith and we're not doing anything harmful. We're just giving you the opportunity to live out your faith and uh, doing something good for others. And this is what you said in the beginning. They are actually trying to replace the, the biological family with a spiritual family, with themselves. So they want to be the ones that can interpret the whole world around these kids and teenagers and not the family members and this is what we actually have to be very careful about
0: I mean this is it, it, this is the first time I've heard it uh placed this way Daniel and I think it's so important because this is a psychological process it's it's basically it's manipulation it's just pure and simple but I mean this this can happen I guess if it wasn't Isis this could happen this could be a boyf- a boyfriend trying to do the same thing with a girlfriend and pull her away from the family and but it's it's not healthy and psychologically we, we need to we need to attack it like you're saying psychologically not just demonize a religion or throw you know not not make this even a religious thing per se as much as a psychological manipulation of another human being
3: Absolutely. Uh, I am very much um, saying that for most of these kids, it's not about theology. It's not about religion in the first place. It is later on, it might come, yeah. but it's nevertheless very ideological. Um, ISIL has a core narrative. Uh, it's a very easy narrative that says basically Islam is under global attack by the forces of evil, the only solution to that is to make a stand and fight back as your individual duty as a Muslim. You have to protect your brothers and sisters. You have to perform jihad. And thirdly, the only vision, the only future that you that is worthy striving and dying for is uh, to build the caliphate, the perfect mythical home state for all Muslims. And this is what they tell these kids over and over again through videos, pictures. There are magazines, individual conversations, sermons. And this ideology, this core narrative, you don't need to be very theological about it. You need, you need not to study the roots of it, where it comes from, to really uh, include it in your life or do, to be persuaded about it. So there are many different aspects that can be attractive to a teen, for a teenager in that narrative. And we need to understand that and we need to counter the narrative through lived trust and diversity based on our own moral values that, that uh, we need to take them seriously. We need to understand that, first of all, they have the right to choose their religion. And if, if it's if it's a certain conservative form of Islam, they have the right to do that too. And they, they have the right to, to, to deserve our support from the families and communities to tackle social issues, to participate in our societies, to to raise their voices and to be critical about our societies and to improve our societies, but always on the basis of... Uh, mutual respect, human rights, or whatever other core values are touched by uh, the ISIL narrative.
0: Because any rejection, any escalation, any if if you turn angry toward them, every one of those validate kind of the religious belief that see God. We're doing God's work, and when we do God's work, the dark side will always come against you. And now your parents have become the dark side. Yeah,
3: that's correct. Well, I'm not saying that we, we need to cuddle no. Islamists and, and terrorists back into our societies. It is a soft soft approach, absolutely granted.
0: It's almost like therapy anyway, right? Therapy is soft and understand not soft, but it's understanding, it's, it's dealing with the real issue instead of just the fear.
3: Right, but we also need to show them that we take our own values seriously, and we are firm on them, that we are consequent on them. Uh, That we live out our own values of diversity and pluralism and that this system of giving these freedoms to everyone is is the strongest, the most powerful uh, political system that we have uh, on the world currently. And we need to convince these teenagers. We are currently, our communities and families are in a competition over which interpretation of the world is better and even looks cooler. Uh, And ISIL is, in many parts, winning that competition because we don't actually understand what it's about. We are demonizing these kids. We're demonizing the families. I've created a family network called Mothers for Life, which currently includes 11 countries, almost 200 families from around the world, and and all of them have been affected by jihadi radicalization in, in their kids. And almost all of them have been demonized by their own communities. And people say, it's your fault, you have raised little terrorists, and you have... Actually, um, you have implanted this real religion in them, and it's the fault of Islam. So these families get attacked, and they, they get blamed, and the communities get blamed. And we, we need to understand that these families, in most part, are alone and helpless against a massively superior and sophisticated and, and filthy rich terrorist organization that directly aims into these communities and families. We, in many countries, we leave these families and communities completely alone in in their struggle. Ah,
0: oh, and you mentioned in your article that um, when the police come in, we they end up because they they don't understand always, which is why they need your training, and we need to get the message out there. They they create a space where the mothers, for example, the, those in this network, those that that have insight. Don't dare turn to the police because they don't want to be, you know, ostracized and 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 blamed. But they also don't know how to handle what's going on with their child, and it's it's got to be a scary place for somebody who's who's losing their child to ISIL.
3: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I have to say, over the the last six years, I've worked with almost 200 families, and I have not met one parent that said to me. I would never cooperate with the police, Mm. not once. What they say is, I don't know what will happen when I turn to the police. I'm afraid that they will criminalize me, that, that I will be seen as a subject, that they will arrest my son and that they won't actually do anything to help me prevent him from becoming arrested. So they are afraid. They don't understand what's going to happen to them. They are afraid of betraying their beloved ones. And losing their relationship with them, so there are many fears involved here. but what I do is I provide like a mentor or a bridge, someone that can explain to the families listen here 's what you need to do uh, here 's what the authorities need to do it 's their responsibility. this is what 's going to happen and here 's the uh, here's way to help you steer the process. Uh, As a counselor, I would advise the authorities, I would advise the families, I would reestablish trust between communities, families, authorities to figure out how far these families can go alone or with counselors and when they actually need to bring in the authorities because it's actually preventing others from getting hurt. Uh, So I actually, through understanding and explaining, I reestablish trust of these families into the authorities.
0: Powerful, powerful stuff. Daniel Kohler is his name, GERDs.org. GERDs.org, go check it out if uh, you're worried about your child. Uh, Lots of wonderful resources there, publications you can look at, events and services as well, as well as all the information to contact um, Daniel and his his team there. Also, you can find the connection to Mothers for Life, these mothers that... um, that are taking on ISIS. It's a powerful open letter you got to go read. An open letter from mothers to ISIS. Anyway, we appreciate uh, Dr. Daniel Kohler. We will take a break, come back to a little coach's corner on the importance of understanding uh, fellow human beings. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching coin. Play ball! Play ball! Hey, friends. um, Powerful. It's still a human issue, right? I think we're going to find out behind every major problem in this world, every major conflict, disagreement that we have, it's just basic human issues behind it including radicalization of our children. And again, amazingly, one of the great resources to impact radicalization are the closest relationships to that person. Uh, we've heard about the the, the um, crazy shootings and uh, events where 11 were injured at Ohio State University. It's real. And it's going to come back down to human relationships and And our own human psychology to fix it. Let's not just demonize it. By the minute we make it a Middle Eastern problem or a Muslim problem or an Islam problem, um, we're failing to overlook the fact that this is a human problem. And human problems are will eventually hurt humans. That's how we fix it: human to human. So if you have. A need. If you see somebody that's hurting and in need, get a hold of GIRDS, G I R D S dot org, and uh, do what you can to help. That's it, folks. We'll take a break. Be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.